Welcome everybody to episode three of M2 on Education. It's Melissa and Mike coming to you again um, with another episode of uh, all things relative to education and the world around it. Uh, we're so excited to be here with you today. Melissa, how are you today? You know what? It's going to be a beautiful day. It's going to be a fantastic episode. It is our first author that we're going to be able to interview today. And I'm very excited about that. So I'm going to give away the little trade secret here. Uh, you know, we've reached this point in our illustrious podcasting career where we can start to share a little bit of the behind the scenes secrets. One of the reasons Melissa is so optimistic is a, she's an optimistic person that this Sister. is going to be a great episode. But she's also optimistic because we've already recorded the bulk of the podcast and we're going to splice it in reverse uh, because we have just finished the aforementioned interview with um, Stephanie Malia Krause and it is fantastic and we can't wait to get to it. And so, but we did want to just touch base with our listeners. Thank you for listening to us to this point. Hope that you're following us on social media. Remind you that if you're watching this on Facebook or elsewhere, that uh, we also upload the audio to these podcasts to all major outlets. We are now, and the tough one was Apple, the iTunes store, but this podcast is in the iTunes store, M2 on education, it's in Google, it's everywhere you could get your podcast, Spotify. Um, so it just uh, just is the audio only, but whatever works, everybody gets their podcasts in different ways. So um, we're super excited to, to get to the interview. So we've trimmed down the, 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 the stuff around the interview, and we're only going to do uh, one thing on the happenings and listener input uh, before we, we flip it over to, the, um, uh, to, to kicking it off for the, the book uh, interview. So Melissa, what do you have for your happenings and listener input today? Well, I have something that is timely, time-bound. It's the Ed Games Expo that's put on by the U.S. Department of Education. It's an annual showcase of game-changing innovations in education, and it's happening June 1st through 5th, and it's going to be virtual this year. Usually it's at the Kennedy Center of the Performing Arts, but this year it's virtual, it's free, and it is something that anybody in the public can tune into and see. So there's going to be 160 different uh, learning games that are going to be showcased, as well as 35 sessions on ed tech projects and initiatives. And uh, you'll have the opportunity to engage with the designers of those games virtually as well. So topics are anywhere from teacher professional development to content-related things, uh, special education, early childhood. Uh, it's just a lot of different opportunities to do some learning about what's happening in the world of technology and education. And uh, you might even just see somebody that you recognize in the Ed Expo launch. Uh, so make sure that you tune into that. That's going to be on June 1st at five o'clock Arizona time. I wonder who that could be. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. You have to uh, tune in and see. Can I just start guessing? We could just, I'll just keep naming people and see if I can stay. Pee Wee Herman. No, uh, no. no, no. Uh, George Clooney. No, okay. I'll, oh, I'll, I'll bummer. Try. No. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. It just these are, I don't know what it says about me that Pee Wee Herman and George Clooney popped into my head at first. Oh, no. You know, it's just the, the random space that is my head. Well, um, so great, very useful uh, stuff there and very, um, very exciting. Uh, anytime you can talk about Ed Games and and his games are so interesting to everyone of all ages. So, um, and a great learning tool. So, my happening and listener input is actually. Uh, it's actually relative to a conversation I was having with a listener. And I don't have anything particularly useful to say here other than to just, I think one of the things we talk about is what's on our mind. Mm -hmm. um, and usually we do three things and just one of the things that's really on my mind. And, um, you know, this is a positive podcast. We stay, we stay positive and we talk about, you know, things that are optimistic and, and, uh, but also we, we have a foot in what's going on in the world. And um, one of the things that was brought up in a conversation with a listener was, this, um, and I guess concern would be the right word about some of the uh, drama emerging around the country, um, around our state. I know people listen to this podcast, uh, as we've said before, around the world. Um, so I think that, um, so this would be relevant to anyone wherever you are, but it's definitely been a, a trend in Arizona, um, has been some of the emerging drama about the reopening of schools, 
um, some of the the issues that are that are being dealt with by educators and school districts and school boards and superintendents um, mm -hmm. relative to reopening. And this is a time where um, what I'd like our audience to know, and especially those of you who aren't in education, is we are so excited to get our kids back um, in the fall in, in many places uh, with so many of the restrictions um, being lifted and mitigation plans are obviously still in place to be smart, um, but we're so excited. We've just missed kids and, and I don't care um, who you're talking to. I have not come across an educator yet that isn't more than ready for a return to something that looks like normalcy. And so, you know, one of the things that um, that was brought up by this listener was uh, they wish that they could just say, uh, you know, let the people know that are behind some of the some of the drama and some of the the concerns that these are people that just have their kids' best interests in 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 mind, and that we always remember that um, you know when you go to a school board meeting, for example, um, and that's a place where people are are supposed to go to be heard and to to have voice their opinion. It's the beauty of local control and school board right. elections, and and that's a great place for democracy, really, at its most in some of its most granular forms. Um, but that we remember that it's so important that we remember that these are people that are trying to serve the best interests of their community, um, acting on the best information that they have, and just trying to protect kids. And so, and there are people that work for school districts and sit on school boards that that span the range of political affiliation and perspectives and viewpoint. But when they, uh, from my experience, and I bet you would agree with this, Melissa, is that. Um, my experience is all those people, when they put on that badge or that ID as a school district employee, none of that matters. They are all really unified around doing what's best for kids. And so I just hope that we remember that, you know, in the end, we're supposed to be the role models for our kids. We're supposed to role model how to engage in democracy um, in positive and productive ways. And, uh, and I think that's what I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, there's a lot of people under a lot of duress trying to make very difficult decisions. And if you look at the number of, I mean, your uh, current superintendent, Melissa, and, you, um, and you're certainly not someone that would go around talking about this, but the number of superintendents around the country that have, you know, are, are starting to leave the field, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, just, it's a lot. And so, um, so I just hope we remember to put our best selves forward uh, when, we're, when we're in these spaces, um, and especially as we think of ourselves as role models for kids. So. Uh, you know, Mike, that kind of, th that makes me think of the um, cynic quote about, you know, remember your why. Why did you get into this field and, and why is it important as an educator to remember to keep the student first? Yeah. And um, and those that are involved, like you said, with, with administration or with governing board uh, responsibilities, really giving them um, acknowledgement and recognition that their why is also about the student. And we might disagree on how things uh, are best rolled out for those students, but really when it comes down to it, it's the student that we're all thinking of, making sure that, that what we do is in their best interest. Yeah, and we all understand that everybody on both sides believes they're doing what's in students best interests. Um, you know, everyone thinks they're that they're correct. And sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. I think I've been incorrect more than a handful of times in my life. Um, but that's why it's important to, I believe, to um, maintain that civility and grace um, so for other agree. people. Because, you know, quite often we look back on our lives, we'll realize that we maybe we didn't have all the information we needed or we just weren't accurate. And so but how we conducted ourselves um, during that time is, is just so important. So um, so I'll climb down off the soapbox, but uh, you know, those who know me know I'm not very tall, so I'll climb up on it any chance I get uh, and, and just go on and on and on. So, um, but that is what's been at the top of my mind recently. Appreciate so, that, Mike. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah, so we are actually going to, um, we're going to jump into our interview now. And just to give you just a very brief uh, introduction to the interview, um, the book is Making It uh, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World. And as you know, we do a book for every episode, but this time we're fortunate enough to be able to have the author um, who is a, a, a former educator, a, a person who's been a social worker, a, a, a national work, local work, just an incredible, um, I just would use the word powerhouse um, and high energy, <laughs> high results kind of person um, and who I have known for quite some time um, uh, and just, just have followed her work. And this book just really captured both of us, I think. And we were so excited to talk to her. So um, it, this interview does go a little bit longer than the time we normally try to do our podcasts in. Um, but we 
we recognize that if we cut this podcast off just to you know make a time deadline, our listeners probably would have just sent us all kinds of <laughs> angry emails, right? <laughs> so, it's worth the time. It's worth the time. It is. And those of you who are parents or just you know have kids in you know your aunt and uncle, a parent, or just a society member who's really interested about what is the future going to bring and what does that mean for our kids and how do we get them ready? Um, for an uncertain future. Um, Stephanie does an amazing job of articulating it in the book um, and really dives into some great things in this interview. So uh, so with that, uh, we will go into our interview with Stephanie, wrap up the episode. Uh, that will be the conclusion of the episode. And we are already planning episode four. So stay tuned for that. Again, follow us on social media. But right now, here is Stephanie Malia Kraus. Well, and here we are with our very first author interview. If I, I don't know that it'd be possible to be any more excited than I am right now. Uh, we are so excited to have Stephanie Malia Krauss with us here um, today to talk about her book, which I'm going to hold up near the blur part of my video oh, here, so you probably won't be able to see it. Uh, making it what today's kids need for tomorrow's world. And I just finished this book myself, as did Melissa, and it was incredible. Um, and we are so excited to have uh, Stephanie uh, on the call with us today to take a few questions and hopefully spark your interest in the book as well. So welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Mike. I don't think I could be more excited to be on the line. So for folks who are viewing or listening, Mike and I really sort of got our start together on the front lines, and he was my first education boss. He was my assistant <laughs> principal evaluating how I was as a classroom teacher. So um, it's been a lot of life since then, but I'm really excited to be here today. Wait, can I just, history was just made here, cultural history. She just coined a phrase, edge boss. I think that's got like a video game. We could do like a first person video game on that. Like I just we'll have to talk about that. Maybe somebody knows a game developer, but Edge of Boss. We need some shirts and everything else. But yeah, it uh Stephanie was uh just an incredible rock star right in from the first day she stepped into the classroom. Um, and just one of those people that you just know has it. Um, and researchers have spent forever trying to figure out what it exactly is and have captured pieces of it. Um, but there is a there was a certain amount of just magic in in the way Stephanie um, interacted with her kids and her colleagues, and I've just been so delighted to follow your career, Stephanie, from the from the time of those <laughs> those humble beginnings uh, <laughs> to today, where we're we're getting a chance to talk to you in the podcast. So we want to definitely hear some of your insights um, uh, relative to some questions that came to our minds as we were reading it. Uh, but Melissa, I think you were really excited to ask the first question today, right? Well, I would be happy to do that. So Stephanie, I know that you and Mike know each other, but can you introduce yourself to our listeners and then talk a little bit about why you wrote the book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Stephanie Malia Kraus, I'm, I'm phoning in, videoing in from my basement in the St. Louis area. It has been super bizarre to do a book launch from a basement, but I'm doing it and embracing it. This basement has also become our home school for the past year and my remote office. So it's really sort of the Swiss army knife of basements these days. Um, but my background is as a, an educator. So you just got to hear that I got my start in Phoenix as an educator, as a teacher, um, working with Mike and a social worker. I ended up leaving the classroom because there were so many um, outside things that were impacting the lives of my kids and their families. And I knew I didn't have the education and um, sort of equipping knowledge and skills that I needed for all of that. Um, and I'm a mom. And I got two boys who are in the middle of their schooling experience. They're eight and 10. Um, so I would say that, you know, the thing about being in education is that so much of our identity, I'm sort of forever an educator, forever a social worker, and very much in the thick of parenting. Um, I'd like to also think I'm an, an activist. Uh, there are some issues I believe really strongly that have just traveled with me um, throughout my personal life and professional life and try to do that activism through my work and writing. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Mike, your first question. <laughs> 
Wow. And that's the longest I've been quiet my whole life. That's how raptured I am. It's, it's absolutely is true. Um, well, I, I wanted to go straight to one of my favorite quotes and this, the, the, um, people that listen to this podcast know that quotes are a big thing with us. And, uh, one really jumped out at me and, uh, you know, I'd say that the current landscape, um, yeah, you know, in society, you know, in, in around the world has, has generated a certain amount of, I don't know, pessimism. I, I think if the media reports and, and uh, um, other things are to be to, to be believed, and you you allude to some of this in your book, but in a very, um, very realistic and positive way. Um, and you had a great quote that I, I really enjoyed, which was, we must find beauty in the brokenness. And uh, can you expand on that thought just a little bit? And what would you say to a, a skeptic or somebody who's pessimistic about our ability to not just find that beauty, but to actually build something out of it. Yeah. Um, gosh. So finding beauty in the brokenness came out of writing this preface for the fifth or sixth time because I had been writing in the middle of COVID. And this is one of the first books that came out that actually talks about the pandemic, the racial uprisings, the reckoning, um, the economic crisis. And and there's a lot of brokenness right now. You know, one of the things you asked me that I didn't answer a moment ago was why I wrote the book. And I think that this connects to that quote in a really important way, which is, this was my love letter back to the front lines. This is the information you and I needed when when we were there as a teacher and assistant principal that I was privy to moving into national work in these conversations about the work that didn't include people who are in the thick of it, parents and educators and coaches and counselors. And too often, these conversations about who kids are, who their parents are, what educators need to be doing, doesn't actually include those folks. And so in terms of finding beauty in the brokenness, that was about how do we how do we take honest stock of the world as it is in, in spaces where it is still unfair and unjust and look inside and examine where there are bright spots, where we can shine the light in um, and see what is being built more strongly, more equitably, um, things being designed in, in the ways that they should should be happening from the beginning. I think, you know, I talk in the book, you might remember about calling on adults, on parents and educators and other people working or raising kids um, to be currency builders, which we'll jump into in a little bit. But the idea at baseline is this dual call, which is how do we help our kids to navigate the world as it is? in its brokenness, in in uh, that honest, you know, assessment of, of what's happening, even as we are at the same time working to co-create with them something that is better and mm. something that is more equitable and just. Wow. Thank you. That's great. Melissa? You, Stephanie, you talk a lot about how the, throughout the book, about how the workforce is changing and that education has to make sure that it's keeping up with that change and adapting and doing things differently for our students. What does that change need to look like for the classroom teacher? What does it need to look like for the school leader? That really is at the forefront of having to make sure that education looks different. I think, Melissa, this for me was the tipping point that actually caused me to write the book, which is I remember standing up after um, leaving Arizona, I had experience running a school and it was a, it was a high school. And I stood up on that graduation stage to give kids these diplomas and knew that they and their families believed truly that that diploma meant they were ready for what would come next. And I saw it in their faces, in the tears. I, I watched a graduation ceremony this morning. My niece, Jayla, graduated. I saw it in those kids' faces. And what I knew um, and, and the moral conflict that actually had me leave education 
for national work was that graduating high school is not always the same thing as being ready for life after high school. Mm -hmm. And we use this diploma as a signal for readiness when actually it's completion. And so when we think about the role of principals and the role of teachers, I think the first piece is how do we get ourselves educated and informed on how the world has changed, how college and career have changed. So the workforce looks much different now. And yet when you think about being in the classroom or you think about being in high school, so often career pathways, career and technical education, thinking about the workforce or jobs is still kind of a dated view um, of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What is the career that you're going to have? What what four-year degree program are you going to go after? And so the, the big important thing here is that that's actually not what it looks like anymore in the workforce. Our kids could potentially work for 80 years or longer. Mm -hmm. That's a lifetime of work. They could have 10 to 15 different careers during that time. They could and will likely hold multiple jobs at one time. So, um, so that first piece that's so important is how do we update and upgrade our understanding of what college and career even is? and what it looks like it's gonna be in the future. And the book tries to do that, tries to sort of give that primer. The second is understanding that we're not just preparing young people for work, but for their working lives. And that learning is gonna overlap with that. That really what's gonna happen in the future is a, a lifetime of learning and work and continuously upgrading what you need to know and can do. So teachers and school leaders that have embraced things like deeper learning or student-centered learning are in a good position for that because we have to prioritize teaching kids how to learn and how to be lifetime learners. Um, so that's the second piece. I think the third piece is the importance of connecting in the way that this podcast does educators and parents together education community and employers together this role of partnering and thinking about how do we support our kids in all of the spaces and places where they spend time to be picking up the knowledge and skills they need is is really the third piece oh great well i would i'm fascinated by one thing that that um, you you talk about in your book a great deal um, with the idea of trying to equip um, equip our kiddos and I, um, I I was just this is more of a you know what what is your gut feeling kind of question um, okay. but it really centers around this idea of you know you talk about bodies to bots in your book yeah. um, and about the roles that are going to move um, you know to potentially being automated um, and the roles that aren't and I you know I've I've been fascinated with this topic and I've heard people talk about you know, the, the, you know, the future loss of say driving jobs, which is, you know, literally driving transportation jobs, uh, on the horizon and how many, how many particularly males are employed in that position in that around the, around the world. And I just find it really interesting. And so I'm really curious, you know, based on all the, the, the research you did for your book and all the people that you talked to, are you agnostic about the ability of, um, the, the available work, to, to somehow parallel the, the, the number of people that are going to need to work? Um, or do you see, you know, there, that there's going to be some challenges in terms of, as opposed to prior, say, uh, revolutions in technology and workforces where it, you were able to open up to more people, this one seems to be potentially a contraction um, but from some experts in, in the necessary number of jobs. What, what's your gut feeling on, on, on that after all the work you did on this book? So when I shifted into national work, I went to work for uh, an organization in youth development. And the head of that organization, Karen, was trained as a sociologist. That was her background. And in her house, she has all of these books from when she, so she's um, around 70 now, um, 70 years old. And and she's got all of her college books still. Hmm. Um, and on the bookcase back from when she was in college are these titles from sociology like the rise of the leisure class will we have to work will tech you know the role of technology taking our jobs and so one thing i just want to sort of relieve us relieve 
us of is some of the fears and concerns around technology, around work, repeat each generation. And this is a different time. And so we have to sort of hold that tension. Um, so I'll try to I'll try to attack your question in a couple different ways. The first is that uh, the you know so that part of the book um, for folks who who haven't read Making It the the first part of the book talks about how the world is changing and specifically how are our kids different how's the world different and so this is situated in that part the role of technology. So the robots have come for a number of jobs. From an equity perspective, what's important there is if you are a parent of um, and you are in a working class job or what you would consider like a blue collar job, um, it is critical that your kids are getting exposure to a number of different opportunities and options for them that go beyond sort of predictable work. And predictable work is, okay, you know, I'm a grocery clerk and I'm doing the same thing at the same time. I'm working in a factory, even accounting, you know, I'm, I'm running data. Predictable work is what is most at risk of being absorbed by tech. But technology also creates new jobs. So even as it's taking these jobs, it's creating new ones that we haven't seen before. Um, again, from an equity perspective, we need to know that most kids who are from families who are struggling financially, it's their parents whose jobs are most at risk of being taken by tech now but not in the long term. I mean, we're looking at the potential for, you really like wanna geek out on the technology, you know, like my kids and I watched all of these YouTube videos of like what the robots are taking. Will robots be doctors? Will they be nurses? Um, but I think what we really need to think about is work as learning, work for living, and then, you know, work for creative expression and, and for connection. So, um, you know, work as learning, we, we are wired to work. We want meaning. We want purpose. And so one thing that I, I think we can encourage our kids to do is move from this is what I want to do when I grow up. These are the, the jobs I want to have, which oftentimes relate to who they've seen, right? So if I've only seen people um, in one of these collars, white collar, blue collar, um, that's what I'm going to want to be when I grow up. And shifting, and I talk about this in the book, instead to thinking about durable work. What is the work that's sort of most resilient to these changes? And what's amazing here is... Um, you know, and Mike, I know that you love music and the arts. Like it is actually craftsmanship. It is the human pieces. It's care. It's education. It's nursing. It's leadership. Um, you know, the things that aren't patterned or predictable. And what I'll say to sort of close us out here is that technology can assist with that. Think about things like Etsy um, or right, like how can we create platforms that support individual or entrepreneurial or artistic work? Um, but technology cannot take over that just because of the way that we're designed as humans. You know, I'm not going to want a computer generated picture from my favorite artist. I want what the artist created. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so it does sound like you're very agnostic then. So that's a Super that's, agnostic, no yeah. passion energy behind this yeah no i think you're just in terms of um in terms of having a very um hopeful which is the overriding feeling i got through the entire book which is i just found that so uplifting for you to be talking about such heavy um and and and, and important topics but you have this uh you have that same optimism that you had from the moment you walked in the classroom and it, that's a great i love that answer thank you uh melissa so Stephanie, in the book, you define four different currencies, and that really is the, the meat of the book. Um, the credentials, competencies, connections, and cash. Can you walk us through each of those and then explain how teachers might be able to utilize that as a platform for learning in their classroom? Yeah, so you had that beginning section, which is, whoa, what is this world? Who are these kids? How are things changing? Um, including 
they're really changing as much and as fast as it feels like. I mean, I think the pandemic in the past year and a half typifies that. And so you're right, Melissa, the meaty middle is, okay, so then what do these kids even need? So I think it's really important to point out what this book is not, especially for parents and educators who are listening in. This is not a book about how kids thrive. This is not about the good life. This is not about character flourishing. This is about actually, you know, talking about the meaty middle. This is like the messy middle, which is how does the world work and operate as it is right now? And how do we give kids a really honest roadmap based on that? Um, I say that because for educators, you know, I mentioned earlier, we've got to update and upgrade our understanding of college and career readiness and like how actually you do get by and get ahead in America. And it's it's not a fair playing field, but we we know a lot about what it does take. So our schools, the way that they're designed, you know, so I know you both are familiar with the history, but we we have a public school system and really all schools for the most part, except for some boutique privates um, that were really designed against a model of getting farm kids to go into factories and predominantly white farm kids to go into factories. And we haven't really done a major overhaul since then. There's lots of reasons why that's a different podcast. Um, but that's based on this idea that the way that you make it in America is you go through school, you graduate, you get your diploma, you go to college, you graduate, you get your degree. You know what you want to be when you grow up. You pursue that career. You get a series of promotions and pay increases and eventually retire with money in the bank that you can leave for your kids and they get to have a life that's better than the one that you had. And, and that has always been flawed. But now it's really outdated. It's not actually how things work at all. But our, our education system is still moving in that direction. And the way mm -hmm. that the post-secondary world, I mean, what's important to note here for folks is when I left education, um, and moved into national work, I started working in the workforce development and higher ed space in addition to working on youth development and education issues. Um, and this was where sort of my mind exploded because I thought, God, why didn't we know any of this when we were in the classroom, when we were in school leadership? Like, I needed to know this information. Um, so a big part of the information here is when you think about college, college in terms of like degrees only represents half of the post-secondary education marketplace. So credentials is a broader thing. It includes apprenticeships and certificate programs, organizations like Starbucks and Google that have their own credentials that they offer now. So um, I think that, you know, listeners need to know that we have hundreds of thousands of credentials. Um, and, and that work, you know, I talked about how work's changing. So here's the point in terms of these currencies you mentioned. So the way that opportunity actually works is once a kid leaves high school or enters adulthood, they enter this complex marketplace that's combined learning and work opportunities with all kinds of different vendors. This one's offering a college degree. This one's offering a training program. This one's offering an apprenticeship program, internship over here, um, job over here, career path over this way. But e each of those opportunities has a cost. And in school, as educators, we often only focus on the credential and sometimes on competencies, on the skills. But that's actually not the only way that you pay for opportunity. There's also connections. Who do you know and who knows you? And how does that get you an in? And then straight up cash. Um, and, you know, I think about I think about where Mike and I started in education and how much our family struggled financially. Um, and we don't name as educators the role of cash enough. So the four ways that you pay for opportunity, these four expendable resources that kids need when they transition into adulthood are competencies. What do, what do they, um, what can they do? What are their skills? 
credentials. You still need them. Employers want to see them. They'll get you better pay and, and you're more likely to get hired. Connections. Who do you know? Who knows you? And then cash. What can you actually afford? One of the hopeful pieces, I spend a lot of time in dropout recovery and alternative ed, is that if you don't have enough of one, you can actually compensate in the others, right? So if you're super skilled as something, my brother was a comedian and artist, never got his high school diploma, but he was obscenely talented. And then he met all of the right people and the spike in connections and um, competencies sort of gave him the road to move forward, but he had to be really high um, in that. Last thing I'll say here is that these currencies are expendable. So kids need to know how to learn and acquire them when when they're low, but they can also be inherited. So a lot of kids, uh, particularly from wealthy communities, they're born with a robust social network. You know, they've got a social bank account and they've got a financial bank account that they're going to be able to cash in on when it comes to finding a job or getting an interview or getting admissions to look at them. Um, so we've got to double down as educators and design opportunities to build connections and cash um, for young people who who don't already have that. And you know, Stephanie, one of the, the phrases that you use in the book is you can't be what you can't see. And to be mindful of that as an educator is so important. Showing them where those opportunities are, where are the doors, who do you need to know in order to open them. That's huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree a hundred percent. And I, you know, it's one of these things, um, that same sociologist, Karen, she used to say like making the invisible visible. If you have it, you don't realize that others don't. And, you know, we, we need to name it. We need to do the hard work of really exploring what, what are our students or what are our children exposed to or not? And how do we get them the experiences they need? Uh, so we're starting to wind down on our time and I could do this for a lot longer, but uh, we'll have to, we have to draw the line somewhere, I suppose. So we're gonna have a, just a couple of final questions for you. And then we're gonna ask you to do uh, something that we always do at the end of every uh, book talk that we have. And that's the talk about something people could do now. Um, but I do want to close on just a couple of final questions. And the first one is, uh, you know, you talked a lot about um, uh, concentration um, as, as a skill um, and that it's something that needs to be practiced and, and how valuable that is um, for our kids. And you talked about some of the things as a parent um, that you tried to do to help your children get the chance to practice concentration. And so I'm just curious that it was a section of the book that I, I was like, oh, I could read a whole chapter just on concentration. But um, I'm curious a couple of angles, whatever direction you want to go with this question. The first one is, um, you know, how do you, how does an, how do we in a, in a, in a system that is obsessed with quantifiable measurable results, um, how do we get a system in your mind to embrace something as as that's not as quantifiable. And I know that we can look for indicators um, that might imply a student can mm -hmm. concentrate, but we don't directly instruct or measure um, generally in any kind of meaningful way. And so, you know, do you have any thoughts on how we could get uh, a more a wide embrace um, and valuation of that? And uh, and do you have any other little tips for, especially for our parents out there who are mm -hmm. um, things that you have found useful in terms of promoting concentration skills for kids. Oh my gosh, so many directions to go here, Mike. So, okay. Pick whichever little, one you want. Yeah, a little speed answering. One of the coolest things I got to do was from the classroom and schoolhouse to the White House. And the first meeting I went to at the White House was called How to Measure Hard to Measure Skills. And they had brought together the best researchers they could find in government, nonprofit, and academia to try and answer this question because there's ample evidence that employers and parents and pediatricians and educators can say, focus, organization, uh, reflection, you know, inquiry, creativity, these are the things that really matter, but they are much harder to measure than math skills. Do you know this history? You know, content knowledge. And um, 
And the good news is that there's building evidence and agreement on how much those skills matter. What I found in my own practice and research that I think is really handy for parents and educators is that it's much easier to to measure the absence rather than the presence of those skills, particularly as a parent. God, do I know when my kid is having a concentration or focus issue. It's much easier for me to peg that. And so if we think about that anecdotally, then it's, okay, what supports do I need to build in when there's the absence of that important skill? Um, And so there's a real sort of, I think about it as the difference between like, traditional medicine and functional medicine. Like these are like the functional skills and the treatments and interventions and how we measure might be a little bit different, (laughs) a little alternative. It doesn't mean it's less important or less effective. These are things like your social emotional skills, right? Concentration, your thinking skills. So what was really striking to me when I was doing the book research, you know, my boys are eight and 10, and I'm constantly concerned about what it means that they're like the YouTube generation. Like not only are they COVID kids, like information and news slamming them all the time, but they watch everything in bite size. And their brains then are like primed for like much shorter concentration. And it doesn't help if your kids already have other attention issues um, on top of that. And so one of the things that was really helpful to learn was actually learning more about the how the brain develops and thinking about the connection between brain, body, and behavior. And that our kids, the front of the brain, um, which is responsible for concentrating and focus, it actually isn't fully formed until you're in your mid-20s, so like 25, 26. And um, I know, I think the baseball phrase is like pinch hitting. Maybe that's wrong. But like there's a part of the brain that, that is trying to do um, what the front of the brain can't yet do, right? It's, it's the second, you know, it's the, the second person, <laughs> the substitute. I think um, pitch hitting is the correct, uh, is it? Connected. yes, yes. Oh, perfect. my son justice will be thrilled. Okay. <laughs> so, pitch hitter. Um, and, and so if you then have, so you all, so here's the deal. So by wiring, kids are already going to struggle with focus and concentration. Then if you've got attention issues um, or hyperactivity or other things going on, it's going to be that much harder. And then you put the frenetic, frantic pace of life and technology and all of these clips and notifications and what that actually does. And it draws attention even farther away from the front of the brain. So not only is it not fully developed, it's not getting the energy it needs. Um, And so all of that to say, this is like pragmatist to optimist. Our kids actually need like life hacks to concentrate and focus, you know, that they're not able to stop sometimes or to self-control or self-regulate or get focused. They they need our help. Um, they need us to come in and put up some supports and interventions um, and to direct them in places. I laughed when you first poised the question, though, because I wrote an article about this very thing um, for Scary Mommy after the book came out called Why Does Your Kid Keep Sneaking Onto YouTube? All About the Brain. <laughs> And then at the end of the article, my son had snuck on YouTube without permission. And I had been talking to my husband about the article. And I yelled at him because obviously, right? Like it's one thing to write about it. It's another thing to live it. You know, why are you on technology? Um, and he looked at me and he's like, scary mommy. Remember, scary mommy. I can't actually control myself. <laughs> Using your own information against you. That's, That's just right. not fair. That, that's a life skill as well. Yep. Well, thank you. So many places you, it, that, uh, that that topic takes us. And I really enjoyed your perspectives on that and the related uh, skills that you talk a lot about in the book. It's not all, it's not just about concentration. And you mentioned those. So people who are interested in those other uh, pieces, I certainly would encourage you to read it. Um, Melissa, I know you've got, we both have about 57 or 59 or 120 more questions, but I we think do. we both get one last one to close it out. So <laughs> Melissa, what's your, what's your 
last one. All right. My last one, Stephanie. What's next for, on the, the horizon for you as an author? What do you have on oh, the hopper? I I do have something on the hopper. I'm sending something from the hopper to an agent today. Ooh. Oh, so first off, you'll just have to have me back. We'll just have to do part two. Like Sounds good to me. Name that, right? So <laughs> listeners, remember, keep us accountable. Um, so I am, okay, so I'll give you some clues because I don't know if it's going to happen. That's a thing. <laughs> right? We'll see if it really happens. But I've really been spending, I am Native Hawaiian, and I've really been thinking about, you know, the future and present day. These are uncharted times. They truly are unprecedented. Um, and what are the lessons that we can instill in our kids and that we can practice in our parenting in particular? Um that really equip and guide kids to keep going and navigating things in the midst of the uncertainty and the change and everything else. So in the Hawaiian tradition, um, there's, uh, if you saw the movie Moana, um, the idea of wayfinding and the Polynesians were able to navigate without GPS to these little baby islands in a very vast ocean. Um, and so I've been playing with how this concept of of raising wayfinders, of wayfinding, actually relates what we can learn from indigenous wisdom in addition to the science we've been talking about today um, to the lessons that kids need to continue, you know, that we actually as parents and educators, like we still have something to bestow on these kids. Um, and then when is it time to unmoor the canoe to let them go and launch? And how do we know when they're ready? So that is a hint at what I've been working on. That sounds amazing. I can't wait. Yeah, and yes, you're definitely going to have to come back. Yeah, and I think we could okay, do good. we could do that episode even if you if you decide to go in a totally different direction for your next book. I'd still love to talk more about that. Uh, either way, that's awesome. Well, uh, the final question that that we have for you is uh, the same thing that we always try to answer um, as uh, as as book readers and and learners, which is trying to take something very uh, tangible and practical out of something that's been read. Um, I'm hoping that uh, that people listening to this podcast are going to want to definitely get your book, which I got my copies from Amazon, so I know they're there. I'm a double up reader. I don't know if anybody else does this. I end up getting the hardback, as evidenced by in my hand, but then I get a little impatient, and then I realize I've got a bunch of Audible credits. So then I download the Audible book, and then I can like bounce back and forth. Um, and uh, I was disappointed it wasn't you reading it because I thought that would have been fun. But you know, your 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 narrator did a great job. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm hoping. Hoping that people will go out and get the book, but um, but what is one thing that uh, you would say that you know somebody that that is really interested in this embraces the the, the ideas that you you put forward and the and a lot of it's not even ideas; it's just the reality of the world that you've done such a good job capturing. Um, what's one thing that a parent, in particular, but you could speak to educators if you'd like. But what you, what's one thing parents could do tomorrow um, that that would be like a first step without even picking this book up? Yep, here's something you could do that would really uh, make a difference and help kids uh, be better prepared for tomorrow's world. So, um, first, Chelsea did do a great job narrating the book. And I was terrified because you don't get to pick your, I, do, I didn't get to pick my own person. So I had no idea who it would be. And she was great. Um, and please review the book, Mike Lee, since we now know you bought Amazon. Um, so, okay. So this is a, a little bit of a sobering moment, but at the beginning of the book, Mike, you might remember this, Melissa, you too. I actually talk about how I set out to write this book on education and preparation. And then I had this conflict where I thought, gosh, actually, this is a book about like mental health and youth development. Um, and the reason why was that every single person who I spoke to pre-pandemic was talking about the rapid rise of mental health issues and their concerns about the cognitive load and overwhelm that our kids were experiencing. And so I called my brother who was a journalist and I said, I, I don't know what to do. Like this is actually not the theme of the book, um, but everybody is talking about mental health. Um, and he said, you've got to put it up front. And so, you know, we're filming this right before the start of summer. So, so many schools are actually ending this week today. And um, I would tell any listener that before we can focus on 
what kids will experience in the future. We have to take stock of where they are in this particular moment after enduring what they have for the last year and a half, every context and situation being different and understanding that that impact can be deep and it can last longer than we would like for it to last. And so my recommendation actually would be after listening this to just take a couple moments to think about the kid or kids in your life and, and to think about in what ways do they still seem to be overwhelmed, overloaded, or in need of help and healing? And then what actually can you do in that space? Because to project out and think about their long lives of learning or their long lives of work or their relationships with technology and with people, it all um, is sort of eclipsed if there are real cognitive or mental or health or healing issues that have to happen first. So my recommendation would be read the book, get yourself educated and equipped, and then ask, you know, are there any sort of oxygen mask things that you need to be paying attention to? Um, and the good news is that there are a number of sort of extras, extracurriculars, enrichment activities, you know, talking to people, things that can be for a cost, but also for free that we can build back in that, that jumpstart that health and healing. Um, so that'd be my recommendation, actually. That sounds like a great one. Well, um, is there is there any place as we close out as I know, I already mentioned that that people can find you um, on Amazon and, and I guess other major booksellers, because mm -hmm. uh, I know this book was everywhere and I was so excited to see it. Um, is there, are there any other places that, uh, that uh, listeners could maybe learn more about you or, or follow you on yeah. social media or websites or? Thanks for asking. So readers can find me at stephaniemaliakraus.com. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Stephanie underscore Malia. Um, and making it what today's kids need for tomorrow's world is, you know, Amazon's an option, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstore if you want to throw them some love, um, Audible. So, you know, find it wherever, but be sure you review it if you like it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know you got two people here that will definitely be reviewing it there um, that liked it. And so uh, we just really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. We guarantee that we'll be inviting you back um, for more conversation. And uh, and I just can't wait to engage with our, our listeners as they read your book because we do continue the conversation. So um, listeners, we're looking forward to going back and forth with you more on the, on the topic about what our kids need for tomorrow's world. So thank you again, Stephanie. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you, Stephanie.